please subscribe and leave a review of Dorky wherever you get your podcasts. Also, you can support the pod if you'd like. You can use PayPal or buy me a coffee. There are links to both methods on Dorky's website and in the show notes of this episode. Thank you so much. Hello, this is Dorky. I'm your host, April. This is a podcast about history. I'm going to be discussing events, people, and sometimes just random things from history that interest me and are important. I am absolutely not a historian. I'm just a dork who spends a lot of time watching, reading, listening to anything I can get my hands on about history. And I want to talk about it. I think a lot can be learned from looking into the past, and I'd like to share what I've learned, and my opinion about what I've learned. And I hope you enjoy it. Welcome back. This is the second half of a two-part series about the victims of Jack the Ripper. Jack the Ripper was a serial killer who had five known victims in the Whitechapel District of London in 1888. In the last episode, I discussed the lives of the first two victims, Marianne Walker, who went by Polly, and Annie Chapman. If you haven't had a chance, I suggest you go back and listen to the part one episode before continuing with this one, as there's a lot of background and context given there that will be missed otherwise. That being said, I'll continue. The third woman in the group, known as the Canonical Five, was Elizabeth Stride. Elizabeth Stride was born in Sweden in 1843. She was the daughter of a farmer. She received little schooling, but that was typical of her rural upbringing at, at the time. When she was 16, she left for Gothenburg to get a job as a servant. She quickly got a job, but that didn't last long, so she moved to a town nearby. In 1865, there were strict laws in Sweden meant to help control the spread of syphilis. Part of this was sex workers were required to register and submit to regular doctor exams. The problem was that these laws were enforced irregularly, depending upon who was doing the enforcing, and seemed to be more about leasing the behavior of women rather than actually protecting the public. As a result, actual sex workers ended up on these lists, but so did women who were single but pregnant. Women frequently seen alone with men, or out at night, and those living as a man's mistress. While it's not known the exact reason Elizabeth ended up on one of these lists, it is known that she was single and very obviously pregnant. She's listed as, and please forgive the horrible pronunciation, Almen Kivna, which means public woman at the doctor. Elizabeth refused to name the father of the baby or divulge a lot of the other information they requested. She was diagnosed with syphilis at one of these required doctor visits. She was immediately sent to a cure house for treatment. It was in this cure house that she gave birth to a stillborn child. Side note, everything I just said breaks my heart so much. This was like 50 years before antibiotics, so Elizabeth would have been getting treated with mercury, which we now know not only wouldn't have helped her syphilis, but would have actually been really bad for her and her baby. But they didn't know that then. 
It's just all so terrible. Once Elizabeth left the cure house, she had little to no options, as one of the side effects of being put on the police register list, for whatever reason you were on it, was that being on it made you ineligible for respectable work. So regardless of why she was on that list to begin with, she ultimately had no choice but to take up the job she was already accused of by the law, and more importantly, society, of doing. She was a sex worker who worked out of, air quotes, coffee houses, which were brothels that masqueraded as regular businesses. While society in Sweden viewed women who wound up on the registry harshly, there was also a huge push to rehabilitate these women. This involved retraining these women as a housemaid. Taking advantage of one of these programs and going to work at a job these agencies provided was a way to get your name taken off the list. So Elizabeth did this and went to work as a live-in maid for a couple who were just about to have a child. It was while working for this couple in 1866 that she received a small inheritance. The amount she received wasn't much, but it was enough for her to move to England to start a new life. She worked in a few homes as a housemaid, and in 1869, she got engaged to John Stride, a carpenter. They soon moved to the East End, where they opened a coffee house, an actual coffee house, not like the coffee house Elizabeth worked at in Sweden. But they ended up having to move it to a new location. Then, John's father died in 1873 and left him completely out of his will. John and Elizabeth were forced to close their coffee shop for good. Between all the strife caused by their business failing and financial trouble, the marriage started to have trouble as well. This wasn't helped by the fact that they'd both started drinking by then. By 1877, Elizabeth left John. She had nowhere to go, so she stayed on the street. It wasn't long before she was picked up for vagrancy and taken to a workhouse. Elizabeth and John did get back together after this, but they continued to have problems. John fell ill two years later in 1879. He was unable to work to support them, and they were destitute. So Elizabeth, well, Elizabeth became a scammer. She claimed to be a survivor from a recent boating disaster on the Thames, while having lost her husband and was unable to support her children. This disaster had really happened and killed many people. While her name doesn't appear on any list of people who received money from charities set up to help the people actually affected by this tragedy, it's a story she often told and likely collected money from charitable people. By the end of 1881, John and Elizabeth were separated for good, and Elizabeth moved to Whitechapel, where she lived in a lodging house. While there, Elizabeth made her living by being a charwoman. This was someone who would come clean house for people who couldn't afford live-in servants. In 1884, John died of heart disease. Not too long after that, she was arrested for soliciting and drunk and disorderly behavior. She spent a week in prison for this. When she got out, she met and moved in with a dock worker who was several years younger than her. They were both heavy drinkers, and they would get violent with each other. From 1886 until her death in 1888, Elizabeth's behavior seemed to only escalate from there. 
She was arrested several times for drunk and disorderly and obscene language, four times in three months. While her heavy drinking was no doubt partially responsible for this behavior, we can't forget that she'd been diagnosed with syphilis like 20 years before this. And by now, it would have probably gotten to its final stage, where it starts to affect the brain. While they didn't understand how syphilis worked back then, and it's impossible to tell now, looking back, it seems pretty evident that's what was going on. An example is that Elizabeth started having seizures, which is one of the first signs of syphilis reaching the brain. The last evening of Elizabeth's life isn't exactly clear, and there are many inconsistencies in reports. Some publications say she had paid in advance for her stay that night at the lodging house. Some say she hadn't. She asked someone to look after a piece of cloth for her while she was gone, and she borrowed a brush to clean off her clothes as she left. She was very secretive, so nobody knew where she was planning on going, or could even say what her usual routine was. What is known is that she had some food and some drinks between when she left and when she was killed. She had somehow gotten a corsage, which she'd attached to her bodice. She also had some breath mints. The North London News described what she was wearing as a rusty black dress of a cheap kind of sateen with a velveteen bodice over which was a black diagonal worsted jacket with fur trimming. They also mentioned that her black grape bonnet was too large for her. Her body was discovered in Duckfield's yard. She was lying in a sort of fetal position and looked like she'd fallen asleep. The police and press, especially with the deaths of Polly and Annie, again assumed the worst in Elizabeth, marking her for history as an unfortunate and a prostitute. Just because Elizabeth did fall into sex work during her life, that doesn't automatically mean that's what she was doing the night she was killed. And it certainly doesn't mean that Polly or Annie were doing that either. Elizabeth was buried in a pauper's grave. The fourth of Jack the Ripper's canonical five victims was found the same late night, early morning, as Elizabeth's body was found. Catherine Eddowes was a middle child of 12. Her father, George, was a tin plate man. This was a very skilled trade, but due to machinery, his trade was becoming obsolete. The family moved to London after George spent two months in jail after he'd gotten into a serious labor union dispute with the owner of the factory he worked at. His union helped him get a job in London, and his wages would have been good for a family with two children or maybe even three. However, George's family had so many children that the wages he earned weren't enough. Kate happened to fall into a sort of sweet spot in the order of birth in that while her older sisters wouldn't have been able to get much of an education due to having to watch the younger siblings or work to help support the family, Kate was able to get some education, which was a big deal. She even got to go on a sort of field trip to the Crystal Palace, which was the great exposition Queen Victoria and Prince Albert had put together. This was one of the first world fairs, and it showcased the latest and greatest technology of the day. Unfortunately, Kate's mother died of tuberculosis when she was 13, and her schooling was done when she was 14. Then, because Kate's story apparently isn't sad enough, her dad died. Kate was sent to live with her dad's brother and his family in Wolverhampton. Her uncle had gotten her a job lined up as a scourer. 
That's someone who takes a metal product that's being made at the factory with tongs because it's still hot, then dipping it in water. It was while working this very hard job for very long hours that it's believed she most likely started drinking. A few years later, she was caught stealing from the factory and fired. This was too much for the family Kate was staying with, and Kate moved out and went to Birmingham, where another uncle lived. Kate found a job working at a factory, but instead of being a scourer, she polished the finished product. Kate eventually met Thomas Quinn, who had been in the military, but was a chapman, which is kind of like a traveling salesman. Her uncle and his wife were very against this relationship, but young love, am I right? They soon moved in together at a lodging house, and Kate became pregnant. They soon fell into a line of work that was kind of a cross between traveling salespeople and carnival barker. While this nomadic type of lifestyle may have been much more relaxed and carefree than the factory work Kate used to do, it wasn't without its problems. It wasn't very stable and didn't pay very well. There was also a lack of permanent shelter. They often slept outdoors. Kate gave birth to their child, a daughter, Annie, in a workhouse infirmary. Having an infant with them may have actually helped Kate and Thomas with their sales, but I can't imagine it would have been easy. They tried to forget their troubles with alcohol as often as money would allow. They soon made their way back to London, where Kate's sisters were all living. The birth of a second child led to Kate and Thomas planting roots in London, but after several years there, without being able to find a steady source of income, and the birth and then death of their third child, led Thomas to leave London to search for work. It wasn't too long before Kate and their two surviving children ended up at a workhouse. Thomas would return to London sporadically, but a pattern of excessive drinking on Kate's part, her family insisted that Thomas didn't drink, would lead to violence, more stays at a workhouse, another child. It was a horrible pattern. Then, by 1877, Kate started getting arrested for drunk and disorderly behavior. By this point, Kate's sisters stopped having anything to do with her altogether. Caught in the cycle of violence, Kate and Thomas continued to split up, only to reunite again. In 1879, accompanied by two of their children, they were selling items. They instructed the kids to stay put and went off. The kids did as they were told, but neither parent came back for them by nightfall. In fact, it was a week before Kate could be found. This happened again a month later, but this time the children were taken to a workhouse. The kids were there for a month before they called the kids' older sister, who was 16 at the time, to come and get the kids. Kate never explained where she had been. Kate and Thomas eventually split up for good in fall of 1881. Kate went to the only place that would have her, her widowed sister who was living in Whitechapel. Kate soon began a relationship with a man named John. Kate's family had never liked or approved of Thomas, and especially with the violence, I don't blame them. But it says a lot to me that as much as they had disliked Thomas, they disliked John even more. Part of that had to do with the fact that while Thomas was sober, John drank heavily. Kate did some work as a charer, like Elizabeth Stride did, while John worked at the market. This income was meager and unreliable. They came to regard the lodging house as home, but they often couldn't afford a night's stay there. Her family tried to avoid her, as she would often show up at their homes begging for handouts. 
In the summer of 1888, Kate and John had gotten temporary jobs as hop pickers in Kent. This was usually a way to earn a decent amount of money, but unfortunately, that year's harvest wasn't very good, so they didn't earn much, and they headed back to London, having spent all they had earned. Kate was picked up for public drunkenness one evening at about 8 p.m. She was released at 1 a.m. She was found a few hours later. The authorities quickly surmised she was a victim of Jack the Ripper, and then assumed the rest about her status and private life. During the investigation, all who were asked stated that Kate was not a sex worker. Her partner, John, even said that not only did she not make her living that way, but he wouldn't have been with her if she did. This was the fourth victim found, and by then the neighborhood and the press were very fired up and very quick to jump to conclusions. Not only did they not believe it when they were told by everyone who knew Kate that their assumptions were wrong, it's like being told they were wrong only seemed to make them believe it more. Not much is known about Jack the Ripper's fifth victim, Mary Jane Kelly, as she told many different stories about her life to everyone she met. Was she born in Limerick? Wales? Ireland? Had she gotten married at 16 to a minor who died in an explosion a year or two later? These are all things she told people. Nobody really knows for sure what the truth is. Nothing she told people about her life before she arrived in London was able to be verified. In fact, no Mary Jane Kelly shows up in the censuses, so it's likely that's not even her true name. It was very, very easy to create a new identity for yourself from scratch back then. The only thing known is that it appeared to everyone that knew her that Mary Jane had received a good education. She was also noted to not have any sort of regional accent. But whatever it was that caused her to move to London must have been a big deal, because a single woman didn't just move to another city back then by herself. It just wasn't done. And to move to London to immediately become a pretty high-level sex worker like Mary Jane was takes connections Mary Jane must have had that will never be clear about. But she was a mid-to-high-level call girl in the early 1880s. While the exact circumstances aren't clear, it appears she went to Paris on the word of her landlady, or madam for lack of a better term, who was to ship all of her items to her. But in one of the oldest tricks in the book, Mary Jane's items never arrived to Paris, and she was stuck working in a brothel to pay off her debt. So yes, Mary Jane was sex trafficked. How she managed to get out of that situation and get back to England is a mystery, but she did. When she did get back to England, she didn't return to the area she was in before she left for Paris, most likely to avoid being found by the people that sent her to Paris in the first place. Instead, she headed for the Ratcliffe Highway. This was a very notorious neighborhood, known for heavy crime, heavy drinking, and lots of sex work. She rented a room in a home that was a brothel. The usual customer for sex workers on the Ratcliffe Highway were the sailors of the ships that came into dock just a few minutes' walk away. It was after her return from Paris, when she started living on the Ratcliffe Highway, that Mary Jane's battle with alcohol began. She behaved so wildly when drunk that she was soon asked to leave the boarding house she was staying in. She did, and moved into the one next door. It was while living there that she began a relationship with a man named Joseph Fleming. He was a laborer in the building trade, so wasn't rich, but they were in love and moved in together. But this relationship only lasted a few months, and Mary Jane moved out of the Ratcliffe Highway area. In the spring of 1887, she started a relationship with Joseph Barnett. 
He was a porter. They lived together, although they moved four times in the 18 months they were together, so it doesn't seem things were all that stable. They were even evicted from one of those places for drunkenness and failure to pay rent. They finally ended up in a single room. Then, in late summer of 1888, Joseph lost his job. They started fighting, and Mary Jane returned to sex work. Even though this is how Joseph and Mary Jane met in the first place, he wasn't happy about her returning to this. Things were especially tense with the murders happening, and they would check the newspapers daily, hoping for news that he'd been caught. Mary Jane started allowing friends of hers, who were also sex workers, spend the night at their place rather than let them risk sleeping outside with a murderer on the loose. This turned out to be too much for Joseph, and he moved out of their place on October 30th. Mary Jane's body was discovered in her room on November 9th. Okay, that's it. I think it's important to know the life story of each of Jack the Ripper's victims. Like I said at the beginning, I'd never heard anything about them aside from their names, maybe their birth dates, and the fact that they were prostitutes until I read Hallie Rubenhold's book. As sad as their stories were, and as tricky as it was to keep all the they broke up, then got back together, and all the births and deaths straight at times, I think it was important that information be there to show how tragic and chaotic each of these women's lives were. They all lived hard, complicated lives, but they all had families. Most of them had been married and had children at one point in their lives. They deserved to have their stories told, to be remembered as they lived, to not just be a name on a list of victims. Thank you for listening. Okay, I'm going to go snuggle with my cat for the rest of the day now. Just like the first half of the story, my main source of this episode was the book The Five, The Untold Lives of the Women Killed by Jack the Ripper by Hallie Rubenhold. I can't say it enough times. This book is amazing. Read it. So that's it. That's the episode. Thank you so much for listening. You can reach me at dorkypod at gmail.com. Let me know what you think of the podcast. Let me know if I left something out or got something wrong. Or let me know if there's something in particular in history you'd like me to talk about. There's also a Facebook group called Dorky Podcast. Join it and be part of our community. Also, please rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast wherever you're hearing it. It helps the podcast grow. But more importantly, your feedback will help me make this a better podcast. Until we meet again, friends. Friends.